Well, I've got to start with some questions for you to guess the answer to. In 1980, how many people attended church on, on a normal average Sunday? How many do you reckon? Oh, I mean in Britain. How many people in Britain attended church on a normal average Sunday back in 1980? The answer is six and a half million. Now, let's bring it closer to now. The latest figures I've got in 2015. How many people in Britain attended church on a normal average Sunday? The answer is three and a half million. Sorry, it's three million. It was six and a half million. I've got my half in the wrong place. Six and a half million. And it's down to three million. It's more than halved, more than halved at the same time as the population has considerably increased. The size and influence of the church in the UK and across the West is rapidly declining. It's declining at an accelerating rate. And this reinforces the impression many have that the church is dying out, that Christianity is some old fashioned superstition that, well, now we've become scientific, is just going to die out, that Christianity is is a relative, a relic of some just primitive traditions. And this situation is is a discouragement for Christians and it reinforces non-Christians belief that, well, Christianity isn't worth considering. It isn't for them. Who'd want to join something that's, well, it's on the way out and it will soon be dead. But is that picture true? Or is that picture too narrow? Let's get the answer from Isaiah 2, verses 1 to 5. If you've got a Bible, would you come with me to Isaiah chapter 2? It's really going to be a big help to you if you can have that chapter open, especially for later in the sermon. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Two weeks ago, we started a new series in Isaiah. Chapter 1 gave us the big themes of Isaiah. And chapter 2 gives us another big theme of Isaiah. And we're going to approach these verses a bit like Google Earth. Are you familiar with Google Earth or another way on the computer of looking at satellite images? And you can start really zoomed out and you can just see the outline. Oh, there you can see the outline of Greenland looking white, confusingly. Greenland's white. And then, oh, I can see Europe looking green and I can see North Africa looking more yellowy. And I can just see the big picture. And then you can zoom in. Let's choose a spot and we zoom in and, oh, look, we've come to the East Midlands and we can zoom into Loughborough and we can even zoom down and see, oh, look, there's Barclay Road and there's Hollywell Church. And then you can put two fingers on the screen or use a cursor and shift it around and adjust what you're focusing in on. Well, I want us to do all three of those with Isaiah 2 verses 1 to 5. Let's start zoomed out with the big picture. Like staying at the outline level where we just see the outline of Greenland and Europe and Africa. What's the outline, the big picture in verses one to five? It's very simple. It's this. The Lord, the God of Judah, will be worshipped by people all over the world. That's an outline for what we have here in verses one to five. Uh, Children, if you're doing your sheet, I think it asks you for a sentence that describes what's verse one to five all about. The Lord, the God of Judah, will be worshipped by people all over the world. 
Let me explain that a bit further. When I say the Lord, and you can see there in verse 2 it says the Lord, it's Lord in capital letters. It's not just a claim that people everywhere will have a belief in God. Lord here is not just a title for a God or a supreme power. Lord is how our English Bibles translate the personal name of the God of Judah. The personal name that identifies him. Uh, It probably was in Hebrew, the name Yahweh. And it's talking about him personally, his name. Now, by this time, Israel had abandoned the Lord. They were worshipping idols. So he's the God of Judah. And these verses are saying all the nations of the earth are going to worship him. The Lord, the God of Judah, will be worshipped by people all over the world. Have you got the big picture? There it is. Now, let's have a think about what a remarkable claim that was. Children, how big do you reckon Judah was? Was it the size of France or of the UK or of the USSR? Oh, sorry, it's not called that anymore, is it? Russia, China? How big was it? Well, Israel was about the size of Wales, a little bit bigger, but roughly the size of Wales. Is Wales a big, powerful country? No insult to Welsh people, but it's a pretty tiddly little place, isn't it? Just one part of the UK. And Israel was about that size. And that's Israel. Israel had 12 tribes and Judah was one of those 12 tribes. So very roughly, Judah was one twelfth the size of Wales. That's tiny. And even Judah itself was not worshipping the Lord properly. Judah was a total mess. Judah was more keen on idols. So worship of the Lord was a really tiny thing. And Judah was surrounded by superpowers, great big empires. To the north, there was Assyria, massive empire. It kept on invading Judah and trashing it. Later, there'd be the Babylonians and they would in, they would actually take over all of Israel and Judah and all the area across, well, across Central Asia and make it their empire. Judah back then was like a goldfish compared with A blue whale. Tiny little thing compared with these massive countries threatening it. And all those other countries that threatened it, they had their own so-called gods. They had their own religions backed up by their massive power and money. The idea that all the world would worship the Lord, the God of Judah, is just ridiculous, just laughable. But it's happened. It's happened. How many people today have met together to worship the gods of the Assyrians and the Babylonians? That that just doesn't happen. Those gods are not worshipped in temples today. They're just remembered in museums. Or let's think of another example. Children, do you know, do you know why Thursday is called Thursday? Why do we call it Thursday? Well, there was once a civilization called the Vikings. We think they just came and attacked everyone, but they're quite a sophisticated civilization. And they believed in a god called Thor. And so we call that day of the week Thor's Day, except we've slightly adapted it to Thursday. Thor's Day. Now, how many people today worship Thor? 
On Thursday, so there are lots of people getting together to worship Thor. How many people today believe there is such a god as Thor? The answer is approximately none. And you're not surprised, are you? Because the Vikings, they're ages ago, aren't they? Just a group from Scandinavia ages ago. Well, are you surprised that anyone worships the Lord, the God of a tiny Iron Age tribe living, farmers living in wooden villages somewhere in the Middle East? But how many today worship him? Well, actually, at this moment, probably at this moment, there will be millions of people in Africa walking home from having spent time worshipping him. In China, maybe around 100 million people earlier today sang the praises of the Lord. Later today, millions from Canada down to South America, from rich to poor, will stream to the house of the God of Jacob. And it's even more remarkable when you consider all this has happened through one man in Judah, who even by the standards of Judah was pretty obscure and small. He wasn't from the ruling class. He wasn't rich or well-connected, even within Judah. Judah was tiny, but he was even tinier. And the superpower of his day nailed him to a cross and executed him. Now, his followers claimed he rose from the dead, but there were only about 120 of them. And they were people like fishermen and tax collectors and ex-prostitutes. What could they do? And yet, within decades, the nations were worshipping the Lord Jesus, the God of Judah. In fact, We've got amazing evidence of this from outside the Bible, just how quickly the nations streamed to the Lord Jesus, the God of Judah. Children, do you learn about the Roman Empire at school? Do you know anything about the Romans? Well, in AD 64, their capital city, Rome, set on fire. Terrible fire. Massive damage done. It was probably started by their cruel and mad emperor, Nero. But he wanted to blame someone for it. And Nero looked around for someone he could blame. And do you know who he blamed? He blamed the Christians. He blamed the Christians. Now, that tells us Christianity had spread across the Roman Empire all the way to Rome and was a significant enough group that even the Roman emperor had noticed them. And that in just 30 years. And today it's spread all over the world. This is reason for confidence in the truth of what we read here. And it's reason for confidence for the future. God's got it in control. Whatever the church stats in the UK, whatever your worries about what's going to go on in the future. The Lord, the God of Judah, will be worshipped by people all around the world. The nations will stream to the Lord Jesus. Now, that was the big picture. I've just told you verses one to five in outline. Well, verses one to four in outline. Now we're going to zoom in. Like on Google Earth, you choose some details and say, let's go down to those and zoom in. We're we're going to zoom into some, not all of the details here. Verse two. Verse two. In the last days. This is all going to happen in the last days. When are the last days? 
Well, you get to the New Testament and it tells you the last days are the days from when Jesus returned to heaven until when he comes back to earth. In other words, when this happens, all revolves around Jesus. Let's move on in verse two to another little detail. Well, it's not so little. Verse two, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills. God's mountain is going to be raised up above all other mountains. What's he talking about? Well, back in those days, remember, this was a very different society long ago. People worshipped their idols on mountains, on hilltops, on high places. And so verse two is saying when it says God's mountain is going to be raised up, it's saying he is going to triumph over all those other gods. But you get to the New Testament and you find out how. So in John 12, you start to see this happening in a very little way, because John 12 tells us about some Greeks, people from another nation coming to Jesus. And Jesus comments on this. He says, I, when I am lifted up above the earth, will draw all people to myself. He's saying, I'm going to do Isaiah 2. I'm going to be the one lifted up and people will come to me. But how was he lifted up? How was Jesus lifted up above the earth? He was lifted up on a cross, looking weak and pathetic and yet dying to save the world and drawing people to himself. Do you see what I'm trying to do with these details? We're going to go through the details and see that they all point to Jesus. He's the he's the way they all happen. So, verse two, let's move on. When this mountain is lifted up, verse two says, and all nations will stream to it. Children, have you ever seen a stream going uphill? I was walking in Dartmoor with a friend once. We had a rather strange experience. We got to this place and there was a uh, there was a patch of turf cut in the ground, the shape and size of a coffin. We thought, has someone buried someone here? And then we saw this channel cut in the ground and water was streaming along it at a good pace. And it looked to us like it was going uphill. We thought, what's happened here? This is all a bit weird, this place. And the water looked like it was going slightly uphill. When we got home, we looked on our map and we saw it was a water channel exactly following a contour line. So it was flat. It must have come down a hill and be going down a hill further on. But our section was flat. But it looked to us like it was going uphill and we couldn't figure it out. Because, of course, that's impossible. Streams do not go uphill. But here in verse two, the nation streaming up the mountain, it's telling us there's supernatural power here. This is not normal. This isn't just human. There is supernatural power. God will, by his power, by his spirit, by his grace, attract, draw, pull people to him. And yet when God does that, people say, verse three, people say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Do you see what's going on? God is drawing them. There's supernatural power. But they say, come, let us go. In other words, they make a real decision, a real response to what they hear in the gospel. And again, we see this repeatedly with the Lord Jesus. He says to fishermen, leave your nets and follow me. That's not natural for fishermen. He says to tax collectors, leave your money and follow me. That's not natural for 
tax collectors, but they do because his call has power. But they made real decisions and they really did it. He says to a disabled man, pick up your mat and come follow me. And his call has power that the man does what was previously impossible to him, but he makes a real decision and he does it. Some of you have heard the gospel many times. Some of you know that the way to become a Christian is to repent and believe the good news. Well, that's good you know that, but it's not enough because you need to actually decide to do it and do it. You need to make the response. So will you? When will you? The Bible says now is the time. Whatever age you are, it says now is the time. Don't put it off. Don't delay. The devil wants to put you to put it off. If he can get you to put it off now, he'll get you to put it off this afternoon. And then he'll get you to put it off tomorrow. And then he'll get you to put it off next year. The Bible says now is the time. You need to respond. Have you? Will you? When will you? Let's let's move on in our zooming in. I'd love to look at the details in verse three and show you how they again are picked up in the Gospels as pointing to Jesus. But I think we haven't got time. Maybe you could do that yourself sometime. Think about how the Gospels pick up on verse three and show Jesus doing them. But let's jump on for the sake of time to verse four. Where is all this heading? Verse four. He will judge between nations. Who will judge between nations? Well, Isaiah 42 has a prophecy of the Messiah, God's servant who will come. We know that's Jesus. And it says about him, he will not falter or be discouraged until he has brought justice to the nations. In his law, the islands will put their hope. Jesus is going to do it. And if you know your New Testaments, you know, one of the big teachings of the New Testaments is he's coming back as judge. And when he does come back as judge, verse four, they will beat their swords into plowshares. That's the metal tip on the end of a plow and their spears into pruning hooks, hooks for getting down branches from trees. What's going on here? Well, here's an example of the opposite. Children, if you go to Woodhouse Eaves and you go to the village hall there, there's a little wall outside, quite low down. It's only about ankle height, if I remember rightly. And there's little stubs of metal at the top. You can see this in quite a lot of old buildings around the UK. Why are there little stubs of metal? Well, there were railings and they've been cut off. Why were they cut off? Well, because in World War One. They didn't need railings. They needed bullets and guns. And so they went around the country and they got all the metal they could to make bullets and guns and the various arms that they needed because there was a war and they needed to fight. And so we must turn peacetime things into weapons. Well, verse four says Jesus is going to make the opposite happen. Swords will be turned into gardening tools because he's going to abolish war. And more importantly, he's going to abolish the sin that's behind war. He's going to bring perfect peace. And this is in picture language. The weapons can be turned into gardening tools because he's going to remake the garden. 
the Garden of Eden without any possibility of it going wrong again. Are you going to be there? Are you going to be there? COVID-19 has shown up, hasn't it? That life is frail and everything's uncertain. And we've got some really dark clouds hanging over our future. What hope have you got? You can have hope in Jesus. If you respond to his call, if you turn to him, you can have this hope, a place with him in his new world. Sin abolished. Eden restored. Death, not as the ultimate disaster that you have to hide away from. Oh, I've got to do everything possible just to avoid death as if that's the worst disaster. No, because Jesus has defeated it and he's coming back and he's remaking the world. Will you have a part in it? Do you remember Google Earth? We can start out on the big picture. We did that. We can zoom into the details and we've done that. Sorry, I've missed out some. And then we can adjust the focus. Put two fingers on the map and move it around. Where do you where are you where do you want to look at? Well, let's do that now just to end. Let's adjust the focus to verse five. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. They were told this so that they would do something about it. And we are told it so we'll do something about it. How are we going to live in the light of what we've heard? Well, it's not triumphalistic self-confidence. Sometimes the evangelical church sounds like, you know, we're the best and everything's going to be wonderful for us because we're God's people and we're building our church. And we we can plan what we're going to do in five years time because we know that this church is going to grow because we're great people. No, it's not triumphalistic self-confidence. Verses one to four has told them the Jerusalem God is going to build. It's a Jerusalem full of God. Verse six onwards tells them Jerusalem as it was then. And it was full of everything except God. Did you notice as Hannah read that to us? Verse seven, it's full of silver and gold. It's full of treasures. It's full of horses. It's full of chariots. It's full of idols. It's full of everything except God. Verse six. God's abandoned it. God's abandoned Jerusalem. And so God would raise up his Jerusalem, but he'd bring down their Jerusalem. Did you notice that as Hannah read to it? It talked about towers and trees and mountains and all tall things being brought down. And it's a picture of this. Verse 11. The eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled and the pride of men brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Verse 17, the arrogance of men will be brought low and the pride of men humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day and all the idols will totally disappear. God will build his kingdom. But it doesn't mean building our kingdom. God will fulfill our his agenda, but he's not our slave To fulfill our agenda. It doesn't mean he'll build our projects. And it doesn't necessarily mean he'll stop the decline of the church in the West. And it doesn't necessarily mean there won't be future persecution here. Here's an example of how this works out. 
One of the church's greatest theologians in its history was Augustine of Hippo. Children, do you remember me mentioning him in past sermons? Augustine of Hippo, what a great name. Where was he from? Where was Hippo? It was in North Africa. Augustine was an African. And North Africa was a stronghold, possibly at the time, the stronghold of Christianity. Is it today? No, it's not. What happened? The church corrupted. The church went wrong and God allowed Islam to come in and basically wipe out the church. And Islam has dominated North Africa for over a thousand years. It hasn't stopped God's plan. The nations are still streaming to God, but it's been terrible for North Africa, dominated by Islam. Now, if you take chapter two as a whole, how are we to walk in the light of the Lord? Not triumphalistic self-confidence. It doesn't say, yes, Hollywell's got a guaranteed future and everything's going to be wonderful in the West. It doesn't tell us that. Not triumphalistic self-confidence, but confidence in God's triumph. In the 18th and 19th centuries, thousands of missionaries went out to the, from the UK to various parts of the world because they knew the need there was in the world, but also because they were confident. God will win the nations. This is not a hopeless cause. And we are God's way of doing that. He will do it, but he will do it through his people. In, in the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas, they were out spreading the gospel and they were preaching to people and they gave a a rather unexpected reason for why they were doing that. They said this. This is Acts chapter 13, verse 47. This is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the nations that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's that's Isaiah 2 stuff, but it's actually a direct quote of Isaiah 42. It's a prophecy about Jesus. And yet Paul and Barnabas say it's about us. We are the light for the nations. We will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Yes, it's about Jesus, but we are the body of Jesus. We, the church, are his hands, are his feet, are his mouth. And so it's through us it happens. So have you caught the vision? We have reason to be confident in the Bible's message. We have reason to be confident for the future. We have reason to be excited about what God is going to do. We have reason to think in terms of God's worldwide work and it stays on a far bigger scale than we see here. Every ethnic group, every language is going to be represented in heaven because God's going to win people from them all. There's still a lot of work to do. But people will stream to the Lord Jesus. So will you be his hands, his feet, his mouth? Will you be the means the Lord Jesus uses to do this? Will you consider if God wants you to go into some other part of the world and bring this message to a people group who aren't yet reached, to a language that don't yet have the gospel? In the 18th century, William Carey had God's worldwide work on his heart. He really wanted to go to the Pacific Islands and tell the people there the gospel. He eventually went to India and did an amazing work. 
But at first, when he was a young man, working, making shoes, he couldn't do it. It just wasn't in the realm of possibility. So what did he do? He did what he could. He told the gospel to his family. He brought the good news to the people he worked with, to those around him. Have you got the vision for the big picture? And will you do what you can here and now? We're going to sing a hymn. Well, it's a psalm, actually. It's Psalm 67. It's very similar to Isaiah 2. It's a prayer that God would bless us so that Isaiah 2 happens. So let's respond to what we've heard by singing Psalm 67. <laughs> 